Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's to our local independent businesses. For the last few months, they have been adapting and surviving, finding new ways to serve our communities. At Bank of Ireland, we're doing our bit. And because your financial well-being is our priority, our dedicated business teams can help you take the next step. So we can all keep tapping, clicking and collecting. And one day, getting back to what we all do best. We can, we will, begin. Bank of Ireland is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. So Everyone has launched their leadership campaigns and I'm going to be honest dad not that impressed you know what I want to say are you still a member of the party no you left I'm going to register to vote okay. 25 pounds I don't think I can I think I'm you're banned. excluded yeah. I know but I don't think I can even I don't think I can even get in as a registered supporter really yeah wow I've, I've checked out the rules it's quite difficult wow mm. um I the thing that's been bugging me and I'm sure bugging you more is why all of them feel they have to attack the governments, the Labour governments that were in power before. When they you don't were, all. Well, I mean, none of them have sort of said, yeah, no. like we should actually appreciate what they did to get into power. And it's so it's so unpragmatic to me to not say, to not think, well, how did they, how did Labour get into power three times? Yeah, I don't think Tony and I have been asked to help with the analysis of defeat. Yeah, well, you should have. <laughs> if, if they actually cared about winning... You should have, but they're just losers. Well, I thought the... Um, I didn't really like Keir's video that much. I, th- I know why he's doing it, he's appealing to the left, but to have the only mentions of the, the new Labour government were Iraq and asylum seekers' benefits. Mm. Um, and as for Rebecca Long-Bailey, with, I'd give Jeremy Corbyn 10 out of 10. And I think she called the Labour government, or she's previous leaders, Tory Light... I mean, it's just incredible what the Labour government did, Tony and Gordon. Uh, and yes, you can say it ended badly because of the economic crash. But that was, you know, not Gordon Brown's fault, contrary to the Tory propaganda. But the Labour Party has played into this ever since. Yeah, I so know. This is an argument I used to have with Ed Miliband. If you don't defend the Labour government record, the people are going to think, well, why should we have a Labour government? Exactly. And no, but anyway. also people just think, well, you're just two parties. Yeah. You're not all from one party. Yeah. So why and so yes, yesterday, um, when, when she launched her thing, Rebecca Long-Bailey said this thing about, you know, we've got to stop attacking each other. Uh, well, fine, but you've spent years, you've spent years attacking... Us. ...the record of the Labour government. 
Crazy. It's wild to me. Anyway. This feels like a good moment to plug my tour. Oh, right. Let's yeah, talk about you. Let's talk about the tour mm. because I need to sell tickets. <laughs> so I did an Edinburgh show at the Which Fringe. Which is very good. Sold out. Sold out. Why I'm never going into politics. Yeah. I'm now rewriting the show mm-hmm. to make a 2020 version. And I'm going to talk about all of this. Keir Starmer, the leadership election, Boris Johnson and his holiday in Mustique. I've, I'm writing lots of new material, which uh-huh. I'm very excited about. So it starts at Soho Theatre in London on the 17th and 18th of February. Then I'm going all around the country. And you are. can go on my website now, because I've updated it. Have you? Disgracecampbell.co.uk. Disgracecampbell.co.uk. And mickperrin.com. And mickperrin.com, exactly. Mickperrin.com. He's the sort of promoter. He's the promoter. He's, He's the Frank guy. Warren of your tour. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Making as much money, yeah. Yeah, you didn't make much out of Edinburgh, did you? No, I lost. So did I. Even though I sold out. <laughs> I mean, that's hard, though, isn't it? It's a crazy model, Edinburgh. I, I... No, but the whole thing is hard. If you've got to be, like, to be a young comedian... You've got to be rich. Which is not great, No, is it's it? awful. It's why, you know... And yet, when you do make it... Comedy actually used to be this really... Yeah, you make money, but comedy used make to be... a lot. Comedy used to be quite kind of like... People like Billy Connolly didn't come from money. No. He just, it, that, that, then it was, I guess, the way to come up was slightly easier. Whereas now you sort of, people say you have to do the fringe yeah. to get started, but it costs you thousands of pounds. Mm, mm. So, on to the podcast. The podcast. This is the last episode of this season. We took a Christmas break. Yeah, which is a bit weird to do. We I thought the plan was to do series two before the new year. But anyway, Grace, you were in charge I of I got that, the me. flu. Yeah, Thank you. Blah. Anyway, I'm glad. Because I didn't want it to get lost in that time in between no. Christmas and New Year's, and I think this is such a good episode. So the person we have on the podcast today, she's quite a sort of niche, like, topic of sort of experience, doesn't she? The stuff that she talks about from things that have happened um, in her life are quite sort of particular, and I guess she's been a really good advocate in the whole mental health well, that's how I first addiction got to know space. Her. That's how I first got to know her. When um, she approached me after her husband killed himself, Rob, Rob, and um, but she has been great in this space, and also I think she's just amazing in terms of how she's sort of recovered—not recovered—that's the wrong way thing to say because I think it's resilience. Obvious. Yeah, she's developed resilience, and she uses sport for that quite a lot. She's a sort of big advocate for it as well. Yeah. I yeah. think. She really, if you follow her on Instagram as well, um, she's sort of very inspiring and motivational mm, and mm. she's taken all that's happened to her to sort of be a force for good. So let's introduce her now. Our guest on football, feminism and everything in between is fellow mental health campaigner, <gasps> uh, journalist, writer, campaigner, etc, etc. You'd love doing this thing, don't you? Uh, and her name is Porna Bell. Bell. Hi. Um, so the first question I want to ask is, how, in recent years, how many interviews, or if any, have you done which haven't been dominated by you talking about grief? Ooh, that is a good question. I would say that um, it, I've been talking about grief for the last four and a half years. Um, for maybe the first two to three years, I would say about 90% of them have been grief-related. Last year I made an active choice that I didn't really want to keep doing that because there's kind of a lot of other stuff that's going on in my life and areas that I write in and that I'm interested in. So I limit it to maybe about a third of the interviews that I tend to do. Um, But it does take, because when I do something that's very grief specific, it does take 
uh, time for me to recover. I kind of have to lie on my sofa like a burrito and just watch some... That's why we've got you this nice sofa here. And with with (laughs) something like this, for Mm. example, were you coming here thinking, I'm probably going to have to talk about it? Well, I was really hoping that I wouldn't have to talk about football. So that that was the overriding... (laughs) Well, listen, let's get rid of that. On a a scale of one to ten, how big a footballer fan are you? So I don't didn't is this like a rapid fire? No, no, okay. no. Okay, so uh, this is actually a longer answer, I'm afraid. Okay. So I don't tend to watch sports. Um, I've never really been the type. If I've ever watched it, it'll be like the tennis, but it has to be in a group setting. Um, in a list of sports that I would watch, football is pretty low on that so list. You're a zero. No, I think like darts and golf are probably below it, and then. <laughs> Fair enough. So, but you're close <laughs> to zero. Yeah, that. well, that's it's, fine. It's close to zero, but uh, with an exception. Uh, and sorry, not that I've started watching football. Sorry, Alistair, I saw this really hopeful look in your eyes. Um, was that was your Burnley fan? <laughs> you're a massive Burnley fan. Was when you asked me that question, I immediately thought about men's football, and that's just like a default. That's hardwired oh. into me, right? So, right. and then I thought, actually, you know, but this year something changed, which was um, the Women's World Cup. You watched it. No, I did oh. not. But what I did was I read the stories around it and I followed the teams on Twitter. And specifically for me, what really sucked me in was what has now become a very iconic image of Megan Rapinoe. Mm. Um, and I just thought, oh, my God, I have never really, apart from maybe Serena Williams, seen a female sports person in that kind of confident, you know, the, the world is my oyster stance. And... I never, you know, did uh, women's football when I was growing up, like a lot of people didn't. But I just remember thinking that that changed things for me. And the reason why I had found it very hard to connect with football is because it, you know, I guess off the other theme of what you talk about, which is feminism, is for me football has been very wrapped up in a particular type of male confidence and bravado, right, that I found very hard to connect with. Um, You do look look a little bit like the girl in Bend It From Beckham. Um, Let's... (laughs) Uh, honestly, Dad. No, you're ridiculous. Why? What? Um, because you, no, because you she Indian? does. <laughs> yes, because she does. Because she's Indian. No, because she looks like her. Listen, Palmina Nagra is a very uh, <laughs> attractive woman, so I will, I will take that as a compliment. As are you? Thank you. Your thank eyes you. are incredible. Thanks. Thanks you have amazing eyes. <laughs> thank yeah, you. those are the exact yeah. reasons why I've always found football very yeah. off-putting. But did yeah. so because, for example, with Megan Rapinoe, she kind of. Mm goes beyond the realm of football and, yeah. and is actually just a sort of a woman that people are yeah. inspired by regardless of whether or not they yeah. watch football which I think men don't do as much because they don't have as much to inspire people towards because what she's talking about is like you know Trump mm. being in power oppressing women and the fact that we still have to be fighting the patriarchy so did that make you want to watch women's football in any way or just made you interested in her Actually, it made me want to watch women's football, even though, okay, admittedly, I did not watch the football, but it made me it made me more interested in it in a way that I have never been interested in men's football. But it's interesting that you could get that sense of her. Yeah. Without, without the actually World Cup. watching her play football and realising that she's primarily an, a really good footballer. Yeah, I mean, I did stalk her a lot on Instagram afterwards, and I Some have of those seen Instagram clips pictures. of her. Oh my god! <laughs> like what? Oh, the Sports Illustrated shoot <laughs> on the beach. It's something else. He looks quite excited. Oh, Alistair! But it is. I'm sorry. It is. I had it as my screensaver for a while. 
You didn't. I did. You didn't. Yeah. Stop it. It replaced Ben Nevis for a while. Ben Nevis is back now. <laughs> ben Enduring Nevis, your lover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, big Ben. Um, yeah, so it's it's winning uh, against dance and golf. Okay. Yeah. So um, why don't we do then, on a scale of one to ten, mm. how much of a feminist are you for it being your reasoning to not really <sighs> like football? I mean, the thing is, I view feminism as something that isn't really take it or leave it. Like, it doesn't, it's not really on a spectrum for me because there are just some very big fundamentals uh, about equality, which is what my version of feminism is. I would say that if I'm being really honest, I'm a nine and maybe the one, the reason why I'm not a 10 is because I'm going to blame this on conditioning um, that you have, which is that sometimes I get jealous of other women and I can't really articulate why I'm jealous of them. Oh, God, give me an example. <laughs> no, it's just... So I think Dolly Alderton said this uh, once about being in the gym. Like, it's about being in the gym and then just worrying that I'm not as capable as other women, specifically in the gym. And I never look at other men and think that. Mm. That's um, a, yeah, it's a good example. Mm. What's that I, but I also kind of think that's the human condition to sort of... I know that we are, as women, we're, we're taught to compete with other women and because we're made to feel that if they're up there, you're not going to get there unless you knock them yeah. out and then get up exactly. there. Whereas we need yeah. to be sort of supporting people. But I grew up with him as a dad and we we the him. most competitive... <laughs> family in the world so I feel like just being competitive I'm competitive with absolutely everybody yeah um but so I think you you're you're Indian mm, right I am and your parent your parents what's your mum like is she a feminist oh yes yeah my mum definitely is I mean she is Who's your dad uh my dad is I think that there are certain things that he um you know so he will still come out but unfortunately come out with and then will just be screamed at by three women you know just things like around women drivers and so on but in terms of uh where he prioritizes my sister and I which is basically like the center of his universe that he's really proud of us that he's never ever um you know questioned our choices like we've always been able to make our own choices i mean when i think about some of the like mad stuff that i just used to come out of my bedroom wearing as a teenager you know he never forced his idea of um what he thought you know a young teenage girl should look like Ooh. when i compare myself to other um other people who had indian parents who came from like let's say quite conservative backgrounds i think that i'm very lucky that um they just allowed you were me to born be, here yeah 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 so i was born and he was born in they were born in india they were born in india <clears throat> you know they've uh, spent the last like 40 odd years here in um in kent and um and when i was 7 we moved back for about 5 years and then uh came back when i was 12 so what do you feel Hmm? Do you feel British? Do you feel Indian? Do you feel both? No, I, I would say that I feel British, um, but I would say that uh, I am also Indian and the two things are neither like one or the other. Mm. So mm. what some people's sensibility of British might be. And similarly, you know, if I went to India, they wouldn't really see me as being Indian, mm. but they're still proud of like the achievements that I have because, you know, I represent... Um, I represent my cultural heritage in that way. But I think when I was younger, I was really torn between identities. And then I went and did like post-colonial literature at university, which made things even more confusing. Mm. And I think now I just think that it's perfectly okay to be both and that the more you have like people writing about and people on TV who represent those spaces, it doesn't have to be a one or the other. 
So, so what was it like mm. going back when you were seven and then moving back here when you were 12? That's quite formative years. Yeah, I mean, I've weirdly been doing a lot of thinking about that recently. Um, and in terms of just how that kind of stuff impacts how you how I currently am and, um, you know, the types of people that I gravitate towards, I think that it was quite... At the time, it felt like a massive adventure um, and it felt like this. Uh, I was getting to hang out with all of my cousins and I definitely know that one of the overriding feelings when I first went to school there was, oh my God, everyone looks like me. And and I can't quite articulate And did how... you come from Kent? Yeah, so right. I come from Kent, from Maidstone, right? Wow. And uh, and I don't really remember, I'm sure that there must have been, but I don't really remember other like children of colour being my primary school, for example, in, in Kent. And then I just remember going there and just thinking, oh my God, everyone looks like me and I don't have to like think about it as a thing. And then we were there and I sort of assimilated very quickly. Um, so th- what, sort of, yeah. what, what sort of school did you go to there? Um, so uh, I went to a Catholic school, actually. Wow. Really? <laughs> yes. But you're not Catholic? No. Ah. So um, you would have Catholic schools there uh, because, wow. you know, the I think there were like just different levels Where of education in India? and so on in Bangalore. Okay. Yeah. Um, Bangalore's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it was, and it's one of those places where I think it's, you know, fairly liberal. I think that, um, that I mixed with a whole bunch of people, but my, my parents basically made the decision when I was 12 that my dad is a retired doctor and he was just like, I can't practice medicine here. You know, it's just too full on and complicated. So we all moved back when I was um, 12 and my sister would have been 16. Um, and I remember that that transition being um, a real shock and not in a good way right. because the things that were celebrated in India, for in Indian schools, for example, you know, intelligence, mm-hmm. um, it seemed like if you displayed that in English schools, you were laughed at, you were made fun of, you were called a boffin, this, Too that and the other. By half. Exactly. So it seemed like you celebrated like stupidity here. And I and oh, I couldn't so bad. Yeah, like it? I couldn't and I couldn't understand it. And then I just thought, oh, so it's almost like you have to hide. I'm not saying like I was a brainiac or anything. I'm, you know, as far from it. But you felt that you had to really hide anything that was good about yourself because people would just kind of pick on it. And then there was the obvious um, disconnect with actually being an Indian girl with a bit of an accent in an English school and I just had to ditch that accent And you'd really gone quickly. into secondary school? Yeah, yeah. In year eight? So you had, mm, no, you year started, seven. Okay. Don't you think, that, seven, don't you think, yeah. don't you think it'd be good though if the Indians mm. came on mass to Britain now and basically told us how to run the country and so, you know, did you see that one? Was it Trevor Noah who did that amazing thing saying, mm. the Indians come and say, oh, you British people, you're not ready to run your own affairs yet. We should run it for you. Don't you think we need to do that now? I don't know if they'd want to. I mean, this is a country. No, they definitely, I think the majority of people looking from the outside in. Laughing at us. Yeah, pretty yeah. much, yeah. I mean, I've got relatives all over and they're just absolutely gobsmacked at what's happening. Here. We look like a joke. We do, yeah. So um, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? I always wanted to be a writer. Wow. Um, I have these, uh, you know, really like colourful diaries that my mum uh, kept. And that was a consistent theme that I always wanted to be a writer, always wanted to be someone that told stories and just chronicled what was going on in life. And I think that that experience of being, of trying to navigate an Indian household, um, but also trying to be British, basically, and figuring out what that looked like for me. Um, writing was a real solace. And also, I can't sing, and I was really bad at guitar, so there were no other creative expressions. Do you not think, but on the dumbing down thing, do you not think mm. that British journalism has been a big part of that? 
Do you mean in terms of... Um, well, we, the country that you say would become where we, you know, let's celebrate not being clever and all that sort of stuff and... Yeah, I, think, I, think, I, do think, I think that mm. thing comes from us being really sort of self-deprecating and not yeah. naturally like boastful people. So you know, even in America, yeah. like they celebrate intelligence and sort of like physical assets more. Not an amazingly intelligent president there as well. I know, but but I do think like here, yeah. you, you, English people are sort of naturally told to be quite like sort of modest and no, oh, no, I'm not that clever. So I think it more mm. comes from that. <clears throat> I think, I mean, I definitely think that self-deprecation has something to do with it, but I think from having seen both sides of it, it's actually probably a privileged thing. So there's a very big difference when, um, so in India you have to pay for your education. Uh, you don't, you know, you don't have the same level of education provided by the state. Um, so over there, um, it is actually your very survival of doing good at school. Um, whereas I think... What I noticed when I came here, especially because when I was at university, for example, I think I was the first year that they introduced tuition fees, but, you know, university used that to be... That was the Blair government. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, oh, my God, Al the look that Alastair is giving Grace. <laughs> £1,000 a year, wasn't it? Had to be done to expand oh, I'd the say sector. nine grand, so... Mm, yeah. Oh, you paid it. Yeah, well done. <laughs> oh, no, the student fees paid it. it. The student yeah. fees paid it. <laughs> Carry on, Paul. Sorry. Treading <laughs> <laughs> over landmines. Um, okay. Yeah, so so I think, I feel like it was that. I feel like there is, you can be, um, you know, deprecating or make fun of people's want to better themselves because there's so much of it sloshing around. Like there's, there was so much room and options to manoeuvre and to fail and still be okay. I don't think that the we're obviously in the same situation now, but back then definitely I think I've noticed that there was a huge disparity between mm. the two. Mm. But yeah. say if you'd have carried on living in India, mm. do you think you would have become a writer? Is that a career that's encouraged there as much as it is here? Um, I think it's very much linked to my parents. So my parents never told me what to do. So uh, when I went to university and I met other Asian um, people who came from, you know, like Bangladesh or Pakistan or whatever, um, it was very much that they were told to do, you know, a science-based degree or something that would guarantee them to have a good job. I never had that conversation with my parents. It wasn't about that. I think that they understood that this there was this thing that I was good at that I enjoyed doing, and so they never tried to mould me in a particular direction. So I think in India, for sure, I probably still would have been a writer. Um, I don't know... Uh, perhaps if I would have been as successful as quickly as I was here, uh, as I would have been over there. And I think that in terms of the freedom to write about what you want to write, um, you know, things were a bit different here. Um, but for sure, I, I definitely would have always been a writer. Can we can we talk about Rob? Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, so when you were with him, and were you not aware that he was a heroin addict until... No, no. How does that happen? I... I mean, to be honest, I didn't even really know that he had um, he had tried it. Really, I mean, I I must how have known. How did you meet? So we met through a mutual friend. When you were how old? Uh, I would have been twenty eight. Okay. Yeah, twenty eight. No, I'm sorry. Yes, I would have been twenty eight. Yeah, um, because I was very cynical about men at that point in time, and he came along at a time where I just thought. 
um, he was amazing. But yeah, the, that conversation about heroin, for example, I think I must have known that he may have tried it once or twice. But it was this very distant, you know, spectre that we didn't really... It wasn't even that we didn't talk about it. It just wasn't a thing. It wasn't a feature at all. Oh, were you aware that he had depression? Yes, he told me very early on. But again, I didn't really know what it was. I mean, I knew... This sounds like I'm oversimplifying it, but it really was as simple as this, that I just thought it was something that you felt sad. You felt sad and then it, it went and then you were okay. Um, and so I think when he talked about it, um, I did not realise the extent to which it affected him. And actually, he'd never really had consistent medical help with it. So I don't think that he even knew to what extent it had, you know, affected his entire and how life. And how was he doing the heroin without you being aware of it? Um, we, it, didn't it sort of change the way he behaved or did you just put that down to mood swings or what? It changed the way he behaved, but it happened very gradually. So it wasn't like an overnight thing. I just kind of noticed this gradual thing of, you know, him spending a lot more time in the bathroom. And when you're in a relationship with someone uh, and you think that they're, you know, having a massive dump or something in the toilet, you can't kind of go, by the way, like... Why are you taking? What's with your bowel? Yeah, you yeah, you just you can say it. Like I tried saying it once, and he was just like, "What is wrong with you? Like, why are you? Mm-hmm. Why are you timing the amount of time I'm in the toilet?" And so, what? Um, and you didn't see any paraphernalia or any of that stuff. So I saw some foil once kicking around, and I just said to him, "What is that?" And we knew. So there was this guy who used to dog sit for us on occasion, who I knew was a bit of a wrong'un. And um, and he said it was his paraphernalia when we had gone away on holiday once right. and had left it behind. And I basically banned that guy from our flat. Did you believe Rob? And I believed him, yeah. Mm. And, um, and so, no, I think that I kind of... He had his own office. Mm. It was in the other end of our flat. It was something that I didn't... My brain didn't even go there. I wouldn't right. have even well, why known. Why would what, it? Yeah, I would not have known... What science did you didn't look notice for. money? You didn't notice the spending being difficult. I or? didn't have access to his. So we mm. had a joint account, and then we had separate finances. And I didn't. We never had that kind of setup where I would sit down and show him my bank statements, mm. or vice versa. And when we eventually did have this honest conversation about it, and he told me what was going on, um, and I just said, "Oh my god! Like, how did I not know this?" And he basically. He said, look, like addicts are very good at mm. manipulating things and bending the truth around certain things. So he said, I did it in a way that you may have guessed that something was wrong, but you probably didn't really know what was wrong. So he did um, He did say that. And when I kind of look back at certain things, I mean, I, I definitely, you know, did not know what was actually going on. But I also think a massive part of me didn't really want to know what mm. was going on mm. as well. Mm. How did it make you feel when you then did find out that that whole time he had been taking heroin? I felt really sick, actually. I just felt like someone had kind of punched me and I just just felt winded. And I remember it's, it's two very conflicting emotions because on the one hand, you have this instant realisation that, you know, your loved one has basically spent every single day um, in abject terror that your your I was going to find out what was going on. And I could not imagine what it must be like to live an existence like that for even a day, let alone for like three years. Was he scared of your reaction? 
Yeah, I think he was scared. He, well, he actually said this. He said, um, I thought that you would leave. And also he just said, so I was trying to fix it before you found out what was going on. Which and was course, he trying to fix it? He was, yeah. So all of the times when um, he wasn't very well or would have stomach cramps and so on um, was him constantly trying to withdraw and then just ending up because back Because you it. described in the book stuff where he's mm. kind of in... You think in abject physical yeah, agony, yeah, yeah. But you discover later he's basically in withdrawal symptoms. Yeah, I mean, I guess he was in absolute mm. physical agony. Mm. It's just that one of us knew what was going on, and one and of you us, didn't. you know, didn't. Mm. It wasn't some mysterious virus that had struck him down, which is what he would always blame it on. Um, and I think that because so much of it was masked with insomnia, which obviously can be such a huge symptom of depression, um, you know, it was really hard to actually pinpoint what was going on. And I think there was one moment where I said, I really think we need to take you to A&E because this is not OK. And this seems to have just come out of the blue. And he said, no, 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 it will go away. It will go away. And the next day he was tests. fine because, yeah, he was, mm. pro- you know. And how much mm. of that time was he sort of spending having big bouts of depression? I mean, I asked his I asked his psychiatrist about this. It's really hard to extricate when it comes to a dual diagnosis. What was what? Um, And it's just not that clear to tell. And also, you know, you're going on accounts from him, which are not necessarily the most accurate. Mm. Um, I would probably say that based on his previous history, he would go through bouts of depression roughly you know, annually that would maybe last about three months or so and that would depend on regularity. I think that what being when you're actively using does is it the reason why it makes it so hard to extricate is because when you are then in withdrawal or when you are then in periods where you're not using, um, there is a depression that comes on because you're basically facing the consequences of what mm. you've done and mm. this mountain of recovery that you have to undertake and all of that stuff just fuels each other. So when, after he passed away, when I was reading this incredible book by this um, uh, professor called Professor Mark Williams, um, he said that a person, for example, who um, self-medicates with uh, drugs for, let's say, 25 years, which is what you know, Rob fell into that category, um, that combination of depression and addiction, um, the it, it's quite, it, you know, the, the chances of it being fatal and it resulting in suicide are quite high mm. um, because they just fuel and they feed each other and it just ends up <clears throat> undermining and eroding everything that makes you the person that you are. Was there, was there any part of you that was not surprised? And sh- I know you were shocked, but was there any part of you that wasn't surprised when he took his own life? I mean, I definitely was shocked. Um, I think that one thing that people said to me was... Um, Oh, but, you know, he attempted suicide before. And I can't explain it in any other way other than we sat down after the last time that he'd sort of told me what had been going on with him and he'd attempted to take his own life. And I made him promise and I just said, look, if things ever get that bad, you have to sit down and you have to talk to one of us and so on. And call it naivety or call it the thing that you have to believe to be able to get through your day to day. But I genuinely, genuinely thought that he would never do that quote marks to us because mm. that's how little I actually knew about suicide ideation mm. and so on because it's got nothing to do with us. It's got nothing to do with the promises that you make to <clears> someone, right? So when he died, um, it was an absolute shock because I just thought my first thought was, oh, my God, how could he have, how could he have done this? You know, mm. how could he have left us? 
And then the more I found out about it, I just realised it wasn't about and he was, in, in part, he was probably doing it for you. Thinking that the, you, the that pain... That we would be made, easier. The pain that he made you easier. live with all the time yeah. and the lies and the trust yeah. and that, that you'd be gone from it. Yeah. And I'm sure that there was a part of him that, that thought that. that. Yeah. What's the impact been on your mental health? I was just about to ask that question. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I didn't know what depression felt like until um, dealing with grief. And I would say that now that I have an inkling of what it is like, because I don't think what I experienced, which was a natural reaction to being mm. bereaved, is anywhere near what someone who is clinically depressed um, feels like. But I realised how um, incredible people are who have depression and how incredible it is that they manage to do anything at all. And I think when you factor in that people have families, they have loved ones, that they manage to maintain relationships, I just thought, you know, the fact that they're able to do any of that kind of stuff is just phenomenal. And it made me evaluate, I think, people, my loved ones that I knew who had depression. Um, I think that that thankfully has passed and, um, and it hasn't really resurfaced. What it has had a knock-on effect on has been on my anxiety. And I've probably always been quite an anxious person. Um, and this is, you know, uh, before Rob. But I think that it is... Um, it's sort of sent, it's intensified that actually, and it's intensified um, the way I react to things and so on. However, what all of this has taught me, which maybe I would not have really done before, mm. is how to catch it and how to treat it and how to manage it. Mm. And so it means that when I'm then presented with difficult situations, um, it is a lot easier to cope with had I just been in my old routine of, oh, no, if I ignore it, it will go away, which mm. is obviously and not you, a good way of maintenance, right? I think it's about health. knowing that it never will just go away. No. You have to do things to sort of boost yeah. the chances of it. You do, you exercise. Does that help your anxiety? And doing you, you do weights. I was looking on your Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Quite um, nice. I mean, not quite in the Megan Rapinoe league, but not bad, not bad. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> But does that help? Because I, I have a thing of feeling strong does make me feel stronger. Uh, it helps hugely. It has always been a part of how I have um, tried to, uh, I think, process things in the last um, decade, for sure. And I think that um, weightlifting, which is currently the thing that I'm mostly focused on at the moment, there is something that is so meditative and so calming about it which sounds like you know really at odds with what people think weightlifting is but for me it's the ritual of it it's um it's a way for me to just unfold it's a way for me to feel really capable and confident what sort of weights do you do I'm doing uh I do powerlifting Alistair so it's um squat bench and deadlift. And how um, much? Could you do that? Well, I could do it. But the question is why you put on it? Can you lift your own weight? Um my squat is 100 kilograms. My deadlift is 125. Alistair's <laughs> looking very impressed right now. Thanks. I couldn't go anywhere near that. So that's my weight, never mind your weight. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. Thanks. Mm. Yeah. So it's it, there's a lot to be said for a You grunt. Like those people on the telly. No, <laughs> you scream. <laughs> no, just on, what was it like the first time after the death and the grieving mm. and the funeral and all that stuff going on, and then your journey to do the book? What was it like the first time you started laughing and realised, oh my god, I'm laughing? 
Um, I can remember it, but we had a suicide in the family, and I can remember laughing about it. Just I don't know why it stuck with me, but I remember laughing. Yeah. This is really bad. I remember it was when my sister came with me to buy an outfit for the funeral. And it all had to happen very quickly. So I found out at um, 1 a.m. I bought my ticket, my flight. My best friend was coming with me. You had to go to New Zealand. I had to go to New Zealand. So I was trying to get there as quickly as possible. So everything, there was like a very quick um, chain of events. So my best friend um, came with me. But in that interim, I realized that I didn't really have anything to wear. And you're in this very weird, surreal twilight zone of... uh, What was the flight like? The flight... So long. Mm, That's awful. I don't know what I would have done without her. Um, And I didn't want anyone to come with me initially. And I fought against the idea that someone should come with me. And my sister put her foot down and insisted that some... She would have come, but she had my 10-year... Sorry, 10-year-old, 10-month-old niece, who was really tiny at that time. So she suggested my best friend Mal and um, Mal is incredibly close to me, but I just thought, you know, no, I don't need anyone with me and so on. And then they somehow convinced me. And when Mal was with me, it's just tiny moments like, you know, waiting to get on the flight, the flight Mm. itself and so on. I don't know what I would have done without her. We, um, you know, joked while we were on the flight. We cried while we were on the flight. It was a whole spectrum of emotion. But even when we arrived at border control in Auckland, you know, she went ahead of me because basically the guy was going to ask why we were there for such a short period of time. Mm. And I saw her, yeah, I saw her talk to him and I saw like them both turn around and look at me and... I was like, oh, thank God she's told him because I didn't want to tell him. And then he was just so kind and really lovely. And just having someone there who was also a link to my life in England Mm. was really important. Someone who was a witness to all of it, who understood when I came back to England and I wasn't surrounded by my in-laws anymore. So So what um, was the laugh over the dress? Okay, so the laugh over the dress was we were running around um, Blue Water Shopping Centre trying to find a dress. And as we were running around, my sister and I just realised why we were there. And uh, both of us, she started crying outside Zara. And then, you know, we both started crying and then hugging each other. And then I just said something like, oh, my God, I think people are going to think like we're in this intense relationship and we've just (laughs) broken up. (laughs) And then she started laughing and then I started laughing. And then we both, you know, just there's just snot everywhere. But I just remember thinking, oh, okay, I didn't, you know, I'm not broken. Like, there is a part of me that still knows how Mm. to laugh. Um, Yeah, that was, and I just remember thinking that that was a very important thing Mm. to hold on to. And then what about getting into other relationships? How long before you start thinking about that? I mean, I think that first sort of nine months to a year is just survival. Like, it's just trying to just do things like eat, sleep, go to work and so on. Um, and you carried on work. You went back to work like, yeah. not long after. Yeah, you I went back to work place. about three weeks after. Um, and I think because I reached a point where I just thought, if I don't go back to work, I'm going to have to stay at home. And I really just didn't. I didn't want to stay at home. And I didn't want my loved ones to feel guilty that I was around. And I just thought, you know, at least at work, I know I have to have awkward conversations with people, but I'll at least be doing something that's a bit, bit more productive. Did, most, did you find most people sort of... Were able to cope, deal with you, and 
They at work they were great actually. My boss was brilliant and he just said whatever you need and I I had to learn how to communicate that. But I realized that there was I mean, you know how stigmatized and how taboo a death like suicide is, let alone when you're someone that's lost your spouse really young. So I was thirty four when Rob died. And I think about I had about four weeks of this of after he passed away and I just thought I can't do this where I just have to have these, you know, stepping on eggshell conversations with people and they're just feeling really sorry for me and they don't really know and they're making assumptions about Rob and, oh, was he selfish and how could he have done this? And that's when I did the first piece of writing that I Ooh. have done around all of this. And although that was unbelievably scary, it was the biggest liberation because I just thought, oh, my God, at least everyone now knows how I feel about it. Mm. Um, and that, to me, was the beginning of all of it, really. Mm. And yeah. so then... So, so you didn't answer my question. Yeah, Sorry, when it comes to <laughs> dating. No, I was going to say oh, that. Because <laughs> so, um, when you Google you, mm. a lot of what comes up is about Rob and your books about yeah. it. And so how is that Yeah, been? so I think that about... I'm going to say about 14 months after he passed away, I started um, loosely dipping a toe into dating because also um, I just felt that I was ready to and it, it didn't feel like I needed to do it to prove a point to people. I just felt I was ready to. And I did it very slowly. And I think the first guy I started properly dating, um, I wouldn't call him her boyfriend or anything, but it was someone I was seeing for several months. When I look back in retrospect, I think I was incredibly lucky because he was a very, very cool guy. Um, he gave me my own space. Um, he just was just genuinely a nice person. And on and off, I've been sort of dating in and around. Um, there's n not been anything serious since then. I do joke about it a lot. It is a lot of the jokier features or the lighter features that I would tend to write. Um, some of it has been great. Some of it has been disastrous. Um, and how does, <laughs> yeah. do some people respond, you know, in the way that we all have, we all know that there's a taboo around death. Yes. Do people, does it make people very uncomfortable in the dating? The thing is, I haven't reached a perfect, when do I tell them what has happened? And usually there's this, it's almost like I can see this thing behind their eyes where they just don't, they don't know how to process it. Is that because they've looked it up? No, I usually know when someone's looked it up, but if someone hasn't looked it up, either they're very good actors or they're just quite genuinely shocked when mm. I tell them. And I think that they don't know how to take it. I think that they, what I see in their eyes is them trying to make an assessment mm. of would how you, damaged you, I am. Would you show it. them a picture of Rob? I mean, if they ever came over to my apartment, they would see pictures of him around. I think that I. Do you still have your dog? No, she passed away. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. She was, we gave her um, up for adoption because she's a big dog and the places that I was living in, I just couldn't keep her. And she fundamentally was Rob's dog, you know. Oh, but yeah, cool. she um, she had, I think she died from cancer a few months ago. Oh, but she was a big dog. She had a good life, like 10 years. 10 years oh, is good. A, good, a good innings for a dog her size. And she was very loved and looked after. So, But do you, but do you worry that another bloke, mm. should that happen... Mm. that past them is always going to be jealous of this other relationship that's obviously probably going to mean more than any other to you. I think that when it comes to dating someone who is a widow or a widower, there it really depends on how that person 
has processed their grief and is processing their grief. And I think that I'm someone who's always tried to meet it head on rather than saving it for a different date because I don't think that that's a really mm. healthy way. Uh, there will always be a space in my heart for Rob that is just us, mm. but that doesn't mean that there isn't an infinite amount for someone new. And I think that the type of person who will understand that is someone who's going to have to be quite emotionally intelligent. And let me tell you, there are not that many people. Especially men. <laughs> yeah. Uh, really? <laughs> 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 there, there, there's, <laughs> there's not an excess of, of them. But I am an optimist. And I think that there will be some... I think it's going to be someone who has had not necessarily the same life experience, mm. but who has experienced life, mm. who understands that things aren't as black and white as we think that they should be mm. or expect life to turn out the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. Should we do your um, dream six-side <gasps> team to change the world? Okay, all right. Three men, three women, okay. dead, or, dead alive. or alive. If I can remember them. So I'm going to start with the men. Um, because that's the order I've written it down in. Um, it's the, conditioning. Okay, photographic memory. <laughs> the first would be Terry Pratchett. Um, okay. And apart from him being one of mine and Rob's favourite authors, uh, he popped up into my head the other day because the thing I love about his books, even if you are someone who doesn't like fantasy, is that he had this way of writing about real life in this very poignant, comedic, but precise way. Yeah. And the thing I saw being shared on Twitter was the thing about the, um, it's called the theory of, of boots or something like that, which is basically that a rich person, um, so like a good pair of boots will cost you $50 and a rich person can buy $50 boots and not have to buy another pair of boots for 20 years whereas someone who is poor will have to buy uh, $5 boots and will have to keep buying those boots yeah. every year and I thought that, that was such a good way that's mum mum shoot it's cheap mm. shoes are a false mum economy mum says that mum says <laughs> cheap haircuts are yeah. a false economy as well because you, like, you go mm. for cheap haircuts and you have to go back once a week yeah. oh really well not once a week no how fast does your hair grow? It does grow fast. It does grow fast. Okay. <laughs> I pay, I've got an Al the Albanian guy, Pelushi, eight quid. What kind of shampoo do you use? <coughs> I use soap. Okay. Sorry. Oh, God. <laughs> Save it for Megan. Right. Um, okay. Uh, second will be RuPaul, actually. Oh, that's right. Yes. So I'm he, watching. He does not know who that is, by okay. the way. You have to. You do not. You I asked you if you, you heard of RuPaul. You have to educate yourself. Because race. I know RuPaul is. <laughs> no, you don't. Look, He's I'm fine great. shaming you. You always shame me for not okay, knowing. Okay, carry on. Okay, you explain RuPaul, who he is. RuPaul, um, who is uh, the most famous drag queen in the world. Oh, yeah, we want to get him on the podcast. Um, yeah, we do. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we do. <laughs> He's the one that I read about recently who went to a club with somebody. Yeah, Elton John. <laughs> oh, okay. Elton John. Okay. Um, I think it was Elton John, yeah. It's in Elton John's book, I think. Okay. Great story. So yeah, he's so. one that's got that show, RuPaul's Drag Race. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's just yeah. come over here. Which is actually, um, which is, as you yeah. know, is obviously, it touches upon some very deep topics around... Um, like things like, for example, gay marriage and it being, you know, uh, illegal in Northern Ireland. And yeah. so it's it may seem like it's about makeup and shiny frocks, but no, it's but actually it's much not. deeper. Mental health, mm, race, Absolutely. And yeah. he is the architect of all of that. Um, the third man, oh God, it's gone. So I'm going to move on to the women and then well, I'll come back to you. You've got to get the man. 
Um, Go on, it was me. Of course it was. Of course it was me. I'm sorry, I've written it down somewhere. Okay, so, ah, David Nutt. Oh, David I loved it. I okay. love yes. it. He's the magic mushrooms guy. Yes. I mean, <laughs> so because he's he much in, more than that, but he was in your documentary. Yes, he was, yeah. Which I assistant produced about okay. um, the, the, the treatments for yeah. depression. And he's he, incredible. His research and the evidence on how yeah. psilocybin can treat yes. depression and people who are suicidal as well. Yeah. And just he's just the, one of the most empathetic people I have heard speak about mental health and mm. also, um, you know, whether or not you agree with his stance on drugs, which I do agree with. Um, I think that the way that he talks about why people use drugs, like mm. the sort of root of addiction, et cetera, et cetera, he is able to do it in a way that is so clear and un- basically anyone can understand it. So, do you think, just mm, on that, do you think if yeah. drugs had been legalised yeah. or decriminalised, that Rob would have been more able to share with you the fact that he was getting addicted? Possibly, but I feel like that works in tandem with that entire stigma that we had and have around mental illness. Mm. Yeah. Um, Because I do believe that a a big element of this was self-medication. For sure. Um, And also, like, addiction mm. isn't seen as much as a mental illness as it should Mm. now, and that it's not as often connected with mental health as Mm. to why people are addicted to things. Yeah, I mean, he, Rob definitely thought that he didn't, he didn't think it was, so when you go to to NA, yeah, he was like, it's not a disease. I I, I said, I'm sorry, I can't buy that aspect of the program. It's not a disease. And I think that his issue was that he believed that it was about his, um, ability and strength as a person, and mm. the fact that he was an addict meant that he wasn't a strong person. Um, so I, I, yeah. So, but so David. So Nutt. David Nutt. David because, Nutt. Yeah, man. I, I yeah. really am a believer in sort of yeah. looking at those alternatives. And you, in mm. the documentary, you met that guy who mm. had done a trial of yeah. psilocybin, mm. and mm. then and it really helped him. And then the trial ended, and he couldn't get access mm. to it. Oh, no. He's back on, and he's back on, and, and they don't work. And yeah. it's really sad because it's mm. like it clearly. Really does work. It's just yeah. we live in such a backward place where we can't. I was writing about him yesterday, actually, in the, the book. Are you? But Ian, yeah, from Watford, forty-two from Watford. Okay. You three women. Okay, three women. Right. So, um, th- I'm sorry. I think you had her before. That's okay. Uh, I think with Jess Phillips. But uh, my my first woman is Jacinda Arden. Okay. Um, had her. Ed Miliband chose her. Yes, he did. Yeah. Jess chose her and you chose her. There just aren't enough Jacindas, so that is, I think, why she's going to be a regular feature. I heard her talk at an event um, that the Gates Foundation did in New York uh, in September. Mm. Sorry, that sounded unbelievably name-dropping. So metropolitan (laughs) elite. I went last year because Scarlett's dad does it. Goalkeepers, yeah. yeah. And and I was so excited because she opened the event and I just was in absolute awe of how someone can manage to pack so much in in such a short space of time and just be this beacon of compassion and knowledge and wisdom and warmth. Mm. So she's my first one. Um, I think she's got more empathy than Theresa May as a Prime Minister. I mean, shockingly. (laughs) (laughs) Can you believe? (laughs) Um, Second woman would be... um, would be Megan uh, Rapinoe. Okay. Wow. Cool. Yeah, good. Because because, sorry, this, po- because, because this podcast is called Football Feminism and Everything in Between. Yes, I decided <laughs> to keep with the theme. And also because, yeah, she made me feel something about sport that I thought I was dead inside about. And I think that that deserves 
you know. Mm. Um, and then the third person is the um, Indian actress and producer, American producer, Mindy Kaling. Mm -hmm. I love her. Um, because she, yeah, there, there is a gross underrepresentation of South Asian women on TV. And when they are represented, they're usually the oppressed, demure yeah, housewife yeah, yeah. who works in a corner shop. And she is the first person who has actually done something where I thought, oh my God, that's what my friends and I are like. And I yeah. love her. So I actually, um, that is, uh, really moved me that I remember, now we're recording this a bit after, which is fine, then mm -hmm. we can tell our listeners that, but I remember going home the day after we recorded with Porna and some of my friends were there and I was telling them about sort of her, her story and it is just sort of, it's so moving. The bit where she had to go to New Zealand and, you know, she's now developed this close relationship with his mum, who she actually, I think, spent Christmas with. Mm. She posted that on Instagram. Um, it's such a sort of sad but also quite uplifting. The way she mm. dealt with it is quite uplifting. Mm. I mean, I, I, I've... Well, you know, I've never had... I don't, I don't think I could even contemplate how I would cope if, if mum, your mum did that. Um, and I just couldn't contemplate it. And yet, you know, I've written about Lachie, my uh, cousin. cousin, his suicide in, in the book. You plugged your tour, I'll plug my book. Plug your book. Um, Better to Live. Better to Live, out in May. Um, I mean, suicide to me is the kind of ultimate in mental illness. It's when you decide that actually life is, death is preferable to life. That is kind of, you know, to get to that is such a, huge thing and and i think i think the way porna talks about it is so eloquent she's so it is moving but it's moving because she's just so direct about it yeah she really is yeah but i mean i i'm sure that's come from the years that she's been now dealing with it you know well i think it also it must came. have matured her so much yeah, she but was not, young when this all happened no but also i mean she I, is young her book that, that she when, when she wrote a book about it um it's a brilliant book and she, I think that helps. Same as you know, the, mm. I, I find writing about this stuff is a, is the, is one of the best ways to deal with it. Um, so I think the fact that you, yes, it was very moving, and but I think she had to go to New Zealand, uh, not just for the practical logistical ex situation but at the time, sort of but sort of you know to find out it. and to, to to explore it. And I think you want to do that. I don't think you'll ever 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 get over it. And there's something that I I write in the book about. You know, you've met. Lucky's children, um, and it really, really, really annoys me when somebody kills themselves. When people say, "Oh God, how selfish!" Well, didn't they think of the people who are leaving behind? I suspect that I don't look. I never met Rob. I have no idea, but I suspect that when he killed himself, a part of the thinking would be making their life better. This will make her life better. Mm. She'll be better off without me. Because I think that when I'm really depressed, I think you lot would be a lot happier if I wasn't here. Mm. And so, yeah, I thought. It, I think she's a. She's a great character. I think she's... Uh, I love to see her happy and smiling, but I don't think if you've been through something like that, that the, it must be in, the, in, in there somewhere inside you. All the time. All the time. I can't Yeah, but that's not. why I've sort of found... Especially her talking about dating and going back to sort of, like, quotation marks, normal life and how mm. exercise has gone. I saw she tweeted this morning. She said, um, I need to tell men that coming up to me at a bar and saying, I once had 
an Indian woman and it was amazing is not the best chat-up line and you're more likely to get your hands stapled to the coasters. <laughs> Love that. Great. Yeah. Love that. She's great. You She's should follow feisty. her on social media if you don't. Um, and that so that's is the, the end of Series 2. That's the end two. of Series 2. Thank when you. does Series 3 start? Well, we need to work that out. Okay. Don't say All that. Right. Okay. So that's the end of Series 2. Thank, ev- thank you so much for listening. And we will be back with Season 3 and it's going to be amazing and we need to do some very big exciting planning and we're going to have some live events as well in 2020 so stay tuned cool men okay the wait is finally over and sport is back on now tv it's lights out and away we go where you can watch sky sports premier sports and bt sport together and all without a contract what a fantastic part so whether there's a day week or whole month of action you just can't miss. You can now stream the lot. Oh, it's a fabulous goal! This is your sport on your terms. Search Now TV Sports to find out more. 18 plus content streamed via internet. Full terms apply. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.